0: This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. Hurricane Ian left an indelible mark on southwest Florida, especially our barrier islands, when it made landfall on September 28th of 2022 as a powerful Category 4 storm with winds in excess of 150 miles an hour and storm surge levels that we hadn't seen in this part of Florida for decades. Our guest today has lived on Sanibel Island for nearly 40 years, and he writes about this area's flora and fauna so has a keen sense of the natural world around us, particularly on the barrier islands. Charles Subzak has published 10 books, including The Living Gulf Coast, A Nature Guide to Southwest Florida, and Living Sanibel, A Nature Guide to Sanibel and Captiva Islands. And he gives lectures on topics like the changing face of nature and the great Florida invasion from pepper to pythons. And his newest one, which reflects on Hurricane Ian, is called Surviving the Storms, Hurricanes, humans, and wildlife. He'll be presenting it a number of times in the coming month or so. So we brought him by the studio for a bit of a preview. Let's hear that conversation now. Good afternoon, Charles. Welcome back to the show.
1: Well, Mike, I'll tell you, it's really nice to be back.
0: I appreciate you coming all the way in from the island. So you still live out on Sanibel.
1: Yes. How long have do. you
0: lived there overall?
1: Uh, close to forty years.
0: Holy cow! So you've seen a lot of change and a number of
1: storms. Quite a number of storms, yes. Charlie and Ian, of course, being the two biggest. Where were you during Ian? I was uh, conveniently in Turku, Finland, which is a classic case of over-evacuation.
0: Did you know it was
1: happening? Were you tracking it? Oh, my goodness, yes. Uh, We watched it on uh, Facebook Live on broadcast from one of the television stations in town, and it was really tough to watch. We were seven hours behind you, so it struck at about 9 o'clock.
0: Hmm. How did your home fare?
1: No, well, the downstairs, not very well. I lost tons of things. Um, but upstairs, because we had impact glass and a, a, a good metal roof, et cetera, it fared quite well. It was, it was basically untouched.
0: Hmm. Um, how close are you to the edge, <laughs> to, the, to the water? Are you about, about a mile. About a mile, and you still lost most of we, we got everything? five
1: feet under, underneath. Wow. Which is a lot which mm. is over the top of a table saw, I might add.
0: So when you got back, um, how quickly did you get back to town? Were you able to get out to the island by the time you got back? Had they got the bridge up and running yet?
1: No, we just continued the tour. Um, but I must admit, we drank more after that. I don't mm-hmm. know why that was, because it was just really rough, especially the first couple days. Luckily, we had a neighbor that check on the house, so yeah, the roof didn't blow off, but our neighbor directly east of us. His roof did blow off, so it was a bad storm.
0: So what were your uh, thoughts? You know, Think back to that day that you went across the causeway for the first time. What were your first impressions of Sanibel?
1: Wow. It was so torn up. There wasn't a green thing to be found. All the leaves were off the trees. Um, you could see for miles in areas um, lots of damage. All the cottages gone. It was a mess.
0: Were you you know, you you write about and think about and talk about flora and fauna and things like that. Were you already initially looking at it through that lens or was there so much human devastation that you may have seen it but you weren't really thinking deeply about
1: it? Does that make sense? Um, no, that, that, that does make sense. Um, I was not thinking at all about writing – or writing, I should say, putting together this PowerPoint presentation uh, about the storms until – I started asking myself one question again and again. How do gopher tortoises survive? Mm. I mean, they don't swim. Well, they can float a little, I've been told. They weigh 25, 35 pounds, and they live in underground burrows. This is, like, impossible. And over time, I did solve the problem most of them don't survive.
0: But some Um, did.
1: I just saw one in my yard about two weeks ago for the first time since before the storm. And you're absolutely correct. Some of them did. And we can get to how they did that uh, along the line here because it's quite interesting.
0: We'll get back to that. I wanted to ask for a couple foundational questions sure. first. You were here for Charlie back in 2004, which changed the face of the island, you know, pretty drastically. But how did this compare to Charlie? Is this Was this just an entirely different oh, yeah. animal?
1: Yeah. The, this is... Charlie was a puff of wind that blew by quick. Ian was the ocean monster. I mean, it it dumped the storm surge was recorded, I believe, at eleven foot four, something like that. It, it's way up there, and uh, with the water sweeping over the island, all of the cottages were blown away. They're all gone. There's not a one cottage standing. The hotels, um, a lot of the motels. The West Wind is gone. Um, most of Island Inn is gone. I mean. It was a tough storm for the island, and Fort Myers Beach, sadly, I would argue, was even worse.
0: Yeah, it's lower lying, I think, and um, I've been out to the beach, and it's remarkable to see all the empty lots along on the beach side. It's
1: like like shocking. You can't quite internalize it. Yeah, the only way, you'd, you'd have to count somehow, but we're talking thousands of homes.
0: So you just talked about or you just alluded to this presentation that you're starting to give called Surviving the Storms, Hurricanes, Humans, and Wildlife. Uh, Give us the basics of what it covers and then we'll drill down into some of its aspects.
1: Well, I start with hurricanes because I I think it's really important for people to know what they are, when they peak, um, the categories and what the categories mean and don't mean, the the failures of the Saffir-Simpson scale – And also the talk about uh, Category 6 storm with sustained winds of – now they've upped it to 192 miles an hour, of which there have already been five.
0: Have they made that official yet? I've heard talk
1: of it. Just – no. It's just in the let's think about it stages at this point. But it is on the table.
0: Hmm. And so you go over some historic hurricanes that hit this area?
1: Yeah, all of them since 1873. And I go over them in quite – good detail, including the Labor Day storm, which missed us, but was one of the most powerful storms that hit the United States ever. It had a 20-foot storm surge. That's really
0: remarkable. Did you happen to read uh, the book by Tom Hall? He's a local uh, – actually, he does a lot of arts reporting, but he's also a local historian. He wrote a book called Fort Myers Historic Hurricanes. Did that come across your radar yet?
1: No, I didn't. Uh, no, I, I, got, I collected most of this on the net and Wikipedia and different places. Like there's a lot of good sources out there for the hurricanes that have hit us.
0: You should check it out because he found through some old archives uh, – like so he gave me a, an advanced copy of this book which was still basically in a Word document, so it was pretty far away from being published, about a month after Ian, and he'd already written this. It opens with a storm that actually hit Punarasa in 1841.
1: I don't know that one.
0: When he uncovered it, basically. when All that was there was a little army fort. It came in with about 14 or 15 feet of storm surge. It came in on the exact same path that Ian did. And it was because of that storm that the army picked up and moved to a safer place. And that's why Fort Myers is where Fort Myers is. Oh. So all the way back to 1841.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of storms.
0: Which I guess one of the things to keep in mind is that even though we had a really long stretch without a big storm surge storm, this area gets them every now and then.
1: (laughs) Yes, it certainly does. And it's never a matter of if. It is always a matter of when. And they don't have to pay any attention to the statistics. You can have two back-to-back in two years and then wait 40 years for the next one. It's just very random.
0: A term we've been hearing lately, and you cover it in the slideshow that you sent me, is rapid intensification, which I don't know if I'd really heard that up until a few years ago. And now we're seeing examples
1: of it a lot, right? The rapid intensification is is a huge problem, and uh, last year in the fall, uh, Hurricane Otis Mm -hmm. uh, swung up from the Caribbean and hit Acapulco, and in the morning or thereabouts, it was a tropical storm at 55 miles per hour, nothing to be afraid of. But by 12 hours later, it had intensified to 165 miles an hour and was a Category 5 that hit Acapulco. The thought of something like that hitting Miami, making it almost impossible for people to even evacuate, is horrific.
0: And, you know, you might go to bed with a storm thinking you're going to have a windy day with some good rain and then you wake up at eight o'clock in the morning and there's a category five storm bearing down on you. Like, that's something that I think even people who live here need to start looking at even tropical storms differently, I would think.
1: Yes, yes, Um, that is one of the things that's in the presentation is that I stress that the key to making it is evacuate. That's, and evacuate even if you think, well, maybe I don't have to because in the superheated waters That we have in today's world these storms can spin from little trouble to major trouble within hours
0: another storm from last fall i just recently did a show about a climate summit and they we talked about um, hurricane hillary it rapidly intensified it hit southern california as a tropical storm by the time it made landfall but it had gone it gotten really big as it came across that part of mexico and then it went all the way in and it caused flooding in death valley
1: yeah, 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 but there isn't anything as such as climate change anyway. Mike, you should know better.
0: Um, do you cover issues around what climate change is doing to storms and, and you know things like rapid intensification? You know, we have wetter storms now. We have
1: slower storms. We have all of the ingredients for more Ian's. Sadly, but beyond that, I cover. What that's doing to the big insurance companies, the insurance companies that insure the insurance companies. And we're talking about Munich Reinsure, Swiss Reinsure, Lloyd's of London. They're looking at things like Otis and Ian, which was a $113 billion storm. And they're saying um, this climate change means we got to charge more and insurance is becoming a major problem in Florida. And it is on Sanibel, Fort Myers Beach and everywhere.
0: Um, can you give sort of a, a rough example of how things have changed for you insurance-wise on Sanibel? You don't have to cite certain numbers, but are we talking about doubling or tripling over the last, you know, less than decade?
1: Um, oh, for many people, yes. Es- especially if they're not elevated and they have to go for uh, flood other than the FEMA flood. And, you know, so being on the ground level now can become very, very expensive, especially after the storms. But um, with storms, Continually increasing like this because of warmer ocean water, um, it's just the scenario is not pretty. So ultimately the goal here is to get off of uh, fossil fuels and, and change, get the atmosphere cooler.
0: I'd like to take a moment to reintroduce my guest. Charles Subzak is a Sanibel-based author and lecturer. He's written 10 books, including The Living Gulf Coast, A Nature Guide to Southwest Florida, and Living Sanibel, A Nature Guide to Sanibel and Captiva Islands, and all he's published three nonfiction titles, two selected works, and five novels. Is that still accurate? That's what your website said. (laughs) Yes, it is. He'll be giving some lectures around Southwest Florida in the coming month or so, titled Surviving the Storms, Hurricanes, Humans, and Wildlife. The next one is March 6th at Friends of of the Pine Island Library at the Pine Island United Methodist Church on Bochelia and then March 14th at the Ding Darling Wildlife Society at J.N. Ding Darling Interpretive Center out on Sanibel. If you'd like to engage with the show about this topic or any of our shows, just find us on Instagram, Facebook, or X. So let's talk about some wildlife. You already mentioned gopher tortoises. We'll get to that in a second. But generally speaking, what kinds of wildlife did the, the worst during Ian?
1: Oh, um, good question. What, what the, probably the top were the gopher tortoises. But um, the marsh rabbits, the marsh rabbits can swim quite well, and they may have survived the storm, but I came to realize by working with SCCF uh, Chris Lechowitz out there has just been indispensable um, that they starve to death. They also don't have anything to drink. Because all of the uh, water on Sanibel, all of the lakes, the river, everything was completely inundated with salt water. So everything died. Most of the turtles died. Most of the frogs died. I mean, they can't handle it. jumped up 50 percent. You know, it doubled the amount of salt water in these ponds, and it instantly killed all the vegetation as well. So the marsh rabbits, even if they survived the storm, didn't survive the hunger.
0: You mentioned gopher tortoises. They can kind of float. Some of them survived. And I learned on this show last year with a woman who works out at correction that gopher tortoises can breathe through their anus.
1: Yes, that term is called colloquial breathing. Now, I know from experience, and you know this too, that I can talk out of mine, but I'm not exactly um, <laughs> capable of doing uh, the other.
0: So I guess in, in, the, in this case, the gopher tortoise would be Nose down, but still.
1: They can only do it underwater. Oh. It's a water-related thing somehow. Huh. You know, it's crazy. It's they, they can breathe underwater.
0: Your presentation cited an example of an eastern box turtle that was marked, and it was found swimming in a saltwater canal in Cape Coral, 15 miles from Sanibel Island, just a few days after Ian. So it was... If that little box turtle went on a 15-mile adventure because of Ian and then survived to tell the tale.
1: Which is totally remarkable because they're also chipped. So they knew it was marked it was a probably a chipped turtle. So they checked it and found out it was from SCCF. It was from Sanibel. It rode all the way up the Galoosachi, took a hard left, and ended up in one of the canals in Cape Coral. Somebody spotted it still swimming. And then they it eventually ended up back on the island, which is just phenomenal. Uh, Our environmental
0: reporter, Tom Bayless, he did a story on a juvenile sea turtle that was found in a retention pond at an RV park in Fort Myers on the one-year anniversary of Ian. Now, there's no proof that it came there from Ian, but it seems pretty likely that if you have a sea turtle, a marine species, living in a retention pond, that there must have been a connection.
1: Yeah, it was likely pushed up, which segues well to the flamingos.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, tell, I, tell us about the... Flam- I, I heard love, that about that on NPR the other day.
1: I love the... Fl- the flamingos were a total gift, so I was looking at the impacts of these major canes on wildlife, not realizing how much it impacted birds. But once I started digging into it, um, a lot of it right on Fish and Wildlife's website, um, I learned about how they can get caught up in the eye and it becomes a virtual wind ca- cage it's a cage of ferocious winds around a center that can be 3 to 30 to 50 miles wide and over t- the, the soaring birds including the flamingos from the Yucatan got caught up in it when idalia stalled and it picked up i figure at least a thousand birds and they got caught in the cage and they fell out as far north as port washington wisconsin which is Utterly. And by the way, they are miserable right now. I just want you to know that they're not happy.
0: The story I heard, I think it was on Weekend Edition last weekend, was how there are some that made it to Florida in places that haven't had flamingos recently. And they're hoping that they'll stick around because we've had some areas of Florida that used to have flamingos that don't have them anymore. But Adalia
1: dropped some. There is no question, as there are photographs on Facebook every day of the flock of flamingos that are now making it home here. And yes, the birders of the, you know, the 1900s, the early 1890s to 1910, the birders hunted. They were here. They hunted them out. So they have a food source, and they belong here. And ironically, um, they may end up here. But the biggest migrant of them all is the cattle egret which came from Africa in 1877, and now is the most populous heron in all of North America. So
0: it came here presumably because of a storm?
1: They're almost positive it because nobody transports cattle egrets. What's the why? Hmm. They think it came in the eye wall from the Azores. That's a couple thousand miles, but Wisconsin isn't exactly the Yucatan.
0: Hmm. Um, How do guanas do? Fabulous, sadly. They can swim?
1: They can swim. <laughs> they got everything. They have... That's Chris, Chris told me from SCCF, he said, when he came back onto the island the next day, the only thing he saw were hundreds of iguanas because there were no leaves, but they can swim. They're saltwater tolerant. Think of the ones in the Galapagos. Um, they're arboreal, so they can climb trees. They can get out of the wind. And they did great. The invasives had a party.
0: How has the... Vegetation, trees, plants, uh, recovered at this point. You, you know, you've already kind of mentioned twice in passing everything there were, was. There were no, there was nothing green. I mean, our, I haven't been out to Santa since since end, so I don't know how recovered it is.
1: Oh, well, I'm really, truly happy to report that for the most part, it is excellent. All of the strangler figs have come back. Um, all of the everything is very green, very lush, and. There are some beat-up trees, but by and large, it looks pretty much like Sanibel again, thank heaven.
0: After Charlie, the drastic change was all of those Australian pines on Periwinkle were kind of gone. You used to drive through a tunnel. Suddenly, you didn't drive through a tunnel as much anymore. What's the biggest difference you think that Ian will leave behind for people who've been here a long time that they might notice
1: as they drive through the island? Um, we did lose a lot of trees and a lot of native trees. We lost a ton of cabbage palms um, that, that got caught in these saltwater ponds that ultimately just poisoned them. Um, but um, it's there's a, you know what? I think it's actually more human in this case than it is nature because a lot of people are going to miss all the wonderful little cottages that were down by the sea that ended up across the street in piles of 30-foot rubble.
0: And there's no way to rebuild them like they were because now you probably have to have your bottom floor 14 feet off the ground in order to meet code.
1: Exactly. And that's one of the big things I talk about near the end of the lecture is how do we mitigate living in these vulnerable areas? Because there's, there is another Ian on the horizon line. We don't know where that line is, but we know historically – that it's there and it's coming. So how do we build better, stronger? How do we make our buildings more resilient? All of that is the human part of, of the presentation, surviving the storms.
0: Do you think that uh, from your perspective that that's something that we can do for the long term, continue living on barrier islands with these storms coming maybe more frequently? Even if they don't, they're gonna come back eventually.
1: Boy, that's a real tough one. And I think some of that lies in the insurance question again. Yeah. Whether or not we'll even be able to insure on barrier islands at some point in time if these storms continue to get nastier. Um, so the, the the answer to that question is it's just such a gorgeous place to live. And um, they have put back all the bike paths. I wanted to get that out there. They're really in much better shape now. I think we can if we harden enough. But there is probably a point in time... Um, if it continues getting warmer in the world, that that question may be doubtful.
0: Did you happen to hear the show that we did with a researcher from UF IFAS? She's a Sea Grant agent who was doing, still is, uh, a research project in Cedar Key about living shorelines. It was a way to mindfully build the shoreline all the way from out offshore through inshore with plants and dunes and certain things. And it just so happened that that's exactly where a dahlia hit. So they were able to collect some data. And they were very effective at reducing energy from the storm, even better than like seawalls and stuff. I don't know if that's something that Sanibel and Captiva think about or know about.
1: Well, actually, right now, Sanibel is in the process of building up a berm along the beach to help Break that up, with, and it's a sand berm, which I'm sure will eventually pick up all of the the native beach flora and fauna. So, yeah, I think they are onto that. And I think when it comes to the houses, there's just certain things that you've got to think about in terms of surviving the next Ian. Hmm.
0: Uh, last question: Do you think coastal Southwest Floridians will be um, more apt to evacuate next time, or do you think our attention spans are
1: not long enough? Um, Boy, I will tell you. Um, every big storm. Will that comes you go around, to
0: Iceland again? <laughs> <laughs> Finland. Oh, Finland.
1: Sorry, <laughs> that that is too funny. Um, all I can tell people is this: No matter what, in these days, if they say "get out of town," get out of town, because it's so silly to be killed by something that's moving so slow and is somewhat so predictable. So I'm evacuate, 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 and then ask questions later.
0: All right. Well, that is all the time we have. My guest has been Charles Subzak. He's a Sanibel-based author and lecturer. He's written 10 books, including The Living Gulf Coast, A Nature Guide to Southwest Florida, and Living Sanibel, A Nature Guide to Sanibel and Captiva Islands. He joined us in advance of some upcoming lectures he'll be giving called Surviving the Storms, Hurricanes, Humans, and Wildlife, which we'll have listed on our website. Charles, thanks so much for coming in and talking to me. It's good to see you again.
1: Thanks for visiting with me, Mike, and uh, thanks for putting on such a great program.
0: Subzak will be presenting his lecture titled Surviving the Storms, Hurricanes, Humans, and Wildlife a number of times in the coming month or so beginning on March 6th at Friends of the Pine Island Library on Bochelia, and then March 14th at the J.N. Ding Darling Interpretive Center on Sanibel followed by several more. You can find a listing of all of them on our website wgcu.org gcl. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director today is Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is beyond for now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island, 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida.